I really mean that. Often when uh, those of us who preach regularly pray for one another, we pray, that we pray for each other that, that, um, that they would hear God's voice in their preparation. We pray that they would... Um, that they would speak what God wants us all to hear, right? But, but often what I love praying for my brothers who, who speak from time to time is that they would enjoy preaching the Word of God, that they would enjoy participating with you on Sundays in sharing the Word of God. And it is a joy for me. I love doing this. The, the preparation is, uh, is a lot of hard work, and I get stressed out in the weeks before but when I'm finally here with you, it is, it is nothing less than a pure joy. This morning, as Steve said, we're going to kick off a three-week series that leads up to Easter Sunday. It's all about the resurrection. Should I stop talking for a sec? Or, uh, I don't know what to do. Ah, if, if I move this way, and if I stay here, but if I move this way... It's clear, so maybe I should do this. I'm just going to wait for someone to come and correct me, but otherwise I'll keep speaking. Like I said, uh, we're going to be uh, dwelling on the resurrection. Uh, It's a three-part series. So today we're going to be looking at how um, the Gospels reflect the truth about the resurrection through the life of Lazarus. Um, Next week, we're going to hear from Doug Virgent on how we actually see and learn about the resurrection in the Old Testament. And finally, on Easter Sunday, our brother Dave is going to come and he's going to talk about the proper resurrection realized in the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, I look forward to that. And while the story of Lazarus is probably a very familiar one that many of you would have started hearing since Sunday school, uh, I challenge that we're going to find out it's the story of Lazarus is packed with all kinds of surprises and deep theological truths that I hope will not just be interesting, but will be a blessing to us. Um, I actually think that by the time we're done, uh, we will see that the story of Lazarus' resurrection is not very much about Lazarus. It's only a little bit about the resurrection itself, and it's mostly about the glory of God. The glory of God that I ask Andrew and Ishii to, to bring to our hearts closely as we worship this morning. And I think they did that very well. I, I hope you did too. Now, anyone who knows me at all could probably tell you that I am the last person to stand up and give some kind of sports metaphor or analogy. I have never been particularly gifted in sports or athletics. Um, I've never really followed a professional sports team or athlete in my life except the 1993 Canadians, Montreal Canadians, when they last won the Stanley Cup, but who didn't? And, And I hold very little interest in sports in general. But what I do really appreciate is how coaches tend to use strategy and attention to detail as a way to sort of maximize the athletic and competitive potential of the athletes on their teams, whether they're team, athletic teams or individual competitors. And one of the tools that coaches use to get this potential out of their athletes is the playing back of game film. And game film is, is just video footage. It could be video footage of 
the athletes, the team, or the, in, the individual competitor themselves having done something in the past, or they might be looking back at video footage of the competition, another team or another rival competitor, and really analyzing in detail small segments of how they performed. Now, they wouldn't normally watch an entire sports match end-to-end, -end, like we would do in real time. They're not watching the game to enjoy the game. They're analyzing specific moments in that competition to look for what made those competitors so great or, or what weaknesses do they have that could be exploited. So, you know, in hockey, they might, the coach might pause the video right before a critical turnaround happens in a defensive zone and before the team loses the puck, the coach might analyze what's going on. What's the posture, the physical posture of the different athletes? Might notice that a right winger is distracted by maybe another player who's taunting them, or maybe there's a pretty woman in the stands and the right winger isn't looking, his focus isn't where it should be. And don't you know it, when the coach presses play, that's where the play falls apart. Or maybe a boxing coach is looking at some game footage and he's noticing how his athlete that he's coaching uh, is slowly dropping that front glove, that defensive glove that should be protecting their head. And maybe they're in the seventh, uh, I was going to say inning. What am I looking for? The seventh round. <laughs> the seventh round by then, the athlete's so tired that that, that that glove that should be protecting their face is dropping lower and lower because don't you know he's getting tired. You know, these are things that, these, these uh, details are important because not just watching the game for the game's enjoyment, but analyzing those details can help make the athletes better. Well, in the same way that the key moments in game film can improve the athlete's performance, the same can be said for studying, for examining key moments of scripture passages together. Uh, and since the story of Lazarus is rather long, it takes up almost uh, an entire gospel chapter, we're not going to be able to break it down verse by verse today, but what we will do is look at three key scenes in the story of Lazarus. And we're going to pause those moments, we're going to examine exact things that are said or done to make sure that we understand what God wants us to understand, and also if there's any way we can apply that to their lives, to our lives, I'm sorry. And like I said, I believe that by the end of the sermon, uh, this careful examination of Scripture that we're going to be doing will result in, first of all, in you knowing Christ a little bit better today than when you first came in. That'll be one thing that happens. Another hope that I have is that this knowledge that you'll walk away with will improve the faith that you have. You will believe a little bit more than you did when you first came in today because of what you know. And lastly, I hope that that faith that we have will act like an engine, and that that engine will spur us on to actions and words that will help glorify the Lord God in our lives to all the people around us. So let's open our Bibles together and start reading at John chapter 10, verse 40, where our story starts. I'll be reading throughout today in, in the New International Version of the Bible, so you could read along if you have it, and if you don't, it might be confusing. You could just look on the screen with me. The Bible says that then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man, that is Jesus, was true. 
and in that place many believed in Jesus. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same Mary who, performed, who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Now let's go back to Judea. Our story starts in the late, uh, late in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, and up until now, Jesus had been ministering heavily in the Roman province of Judea, particularly in the capital city of Jerusalem. Here, Jesus would have been teaching about the kingdom of God, he would be performing all kinds of cool miracles, and he would also find himself in confrontation over and over again with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, be threatening their, their authority. He'd be threatening the way that things were done, the way that things had been taught. And this confrontation would have reached such a boiling point by the end of John 10 that the Pharisees themselves, they weren't just scheming to kill Jesus. They weren't just talking that we think it's time now to pull the plug on this Jesus stuff. It's said in John 10 that they were themselves picking up stones to throw at Jesus. At that point, Jesus and his disciples, they would have left Jerusalem. They would have traveled about 60 kilometers east of the city, crossing the Jordan River to a place that is referred to in John chapter 1 as Jordan, uh, excuse me, as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's a site where John the Baptist had been baptizing, where he had been preaching repentance uh, until the start of Jesus' ministry. And you can see on the map that there's a little green line kind of indicating, you know, the distance between Jerusalem and the place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. Um, the Bible doesn't say how long Jesus spent in that place, but it does say that it was long enough for a lot of people to hear about what Jesus was teaching about and for a lot of people to believe in him. That could be a couple weeks, that could be a couple days, I don't know. Jesus is a pretty compelling guy. It's just the Bible doesn't say how long he was there. But um, it's here in a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan where the messengers find Jesus, the messengers sent by Martha and Mary to find Jesus and give him the news that his friend and acquaintance, the person he loves, Lazarus, is sick. Not just ill, he's gravely ill. Grave, gravely, tomb, is the kind of sickness that you don't recover from. The exact message as scripture records it was, Lord, the one you love is sick. Pause. Pause scene. In my home, I'm known for being the type of person, if we're watching a movie or a TV show, I'm the one who pauses it, and I like to predict what happens next. I have a background in writing and storytelling, and I like to think that if I were writing the story, this is what I'd do. Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong, but all the time, I'm annoying. <laughs> now, if I were writing the story, 
I would have Jesus immediately leap into action. He would have this Lord of the Rings Gandalf moment where he'd rally the quickest horses there are and they'd speed out to Bethany where Lazarus is and, and he'd rush to his rescue because he is the one that Jesus loves. Or maybe I would have written it that Jesus would right then and there on the spot work the first instance of working for home uh, Jesus would raise his hands like Moses, and he'd, he'd just heal him right from there. Maybe we'd even see beams of like electricity flying through the sky. Oh, he's, he's God. Why not? <clears throat> but that's not what happens. That's not how this story, God's story, is written. In God's version of the story, if we press play again, they stay for two more days. Two more days. What do you suppose Martha's messengers would have thought? They were tasked with finding Jesus. How they found him, I don't know. There's no GPS or cell phones or anything like that. But they find him, finally. Who knows how long it took? And they're all, I imagine they're out of breath. They give him the message. Jesus says, we're going to stay two more days. Moment of audience participation. How would you feel if you were them, if you were the messengers? You finally get the message to him, and he says, let's stay two more days. Just shout out an answer. How would you feel? Disappointed. Frustrated. Frustrated. Amen. Anybody else? Mad. Mad. Absolutely. You know me. I'd be anxious. I'd be worried. <laughs> Make sure. No, no. Maybe you didn't catch the message. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to just gonna repeat it here. Oh, Jesus understood. He, he got the message. He understood what was going on. Like... Uh, Excuse me for a second. Uh, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and more importantly, he knew why he was doing it. So much so that he said these key words that we heard in the passage in John 11:4. Jesus, uh, I'm filling in words that aren't here, but you know, this. Yes, yes, John. Yes, Lazarus is sick, and yes, he's dead. But his illness will not end in death. It could start in death, but it won't end in death. No, in fact, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Like many, uh, like many of Jesus' sayings in the Gospels, um, his hearers wouldn't, in the moment, be able to fully unpack and understand everything that he was saying and all that it meant, the depth of it all. But for us this morning, it's important to note that Jesus intentionally used the death of Lazarus as an opportunity to demonstrate the total authority that is given to Jesus over our life and our death. Lazarus's, his own, yours and mine. More than that, and I will try to stress this over and over again this morning, the resurrection of Lazarus itself is not the ultimate goal that Jesus has, as amazing as the resurrection itself is. And it is amazing. I don't mean to make it sound small at all. But like all his other miracles captured in the Gospels, the resurrection of Lazarus is just one more sign that authenticates Jesus as the promised Messiah. It's a sign that points to Jesus being the Son of God, God himself. And all of this, all these signs and wonders are meant ultimately to reveal, amplify, declare the glory of God. 
That's what it's all there for. A lot of uh, preachers will like to wait till the end to give their practical applications. I'm going to pepper mine all throughout the sermon here, and so our conclusion when we get to it, I guarantee you, will be short. It's important for us right now to take away the practical perspective that Jesus knows the timing of our life and death. We've heard this morning about friends and loved ones who have lost family members, or who are themselves gravely ill. Jesus knows all these things. He is God, and we are not. I might know, for example, the day that I was born on. I was born on July 8, 1977. My mom probably knows what time I was born at. Jesus knows what millisecond I was born at from the creation of the world. He knows what person on the entire planet was born right before me. The baby before, born before Louis Bridgman, Jesus knows that baby. He knows the baby that was born right after me. He knows exactly what I'm thinking, even right now, and he knows exactly how long my days are numbered. My existence, your existence, is a complete open book to the Lord Jesus, and there are no surprises in there for him. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David wrote about God, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. The theology we're describing here is something that Ishii mentioned during worship. She referred to the omniscience of God. God is all-knowing, and Jesus is all-knowing because he too is God. But the practical application I can think of is this. Consider for a moment the way we've been observing this story of Lazarus. Okay, For him, for Lazarus, for Martha, Mary, for the disciples, for the messengers, they're all experiencing. This really happened in history. So they are experiencing this in real time from a first-person point of view. All the things that are happening to them are uh, unveiling in real time, but we are examining this story from a different perspective, aren't we? A third-person perspective. In, in, in writing, we would call it the third-person omniscient perspective because we know how the story goes. For the people in the story, Jesus' decision to wait two days would have been upsetting, confusing, shocking. But for us, we have the perspective that Jesus waited on purpose so that he could raise Lazarus from the dead instead of just, he instead of just healing them. Healing them would have been cool too, but he raised him from the dead and he did so very publicly, all so that we would see the glory of God. This perspective we have is easy because we have the full story of uh, Lazarus's life that's revealed in the Bible. But guess what? I don't have the whole story of my life. Steve doesn't have the whole story of Steve's life, and so on and so forth. So when the curse of sin and death hits us, or the people we love, we will need to draw deeply from this knowledge that we walk away with today that it might come as a surprise to us when that time comes, but it will not be a surprise to Jesus because he knows the whole story.
And just as Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, spoiler alert, and spoiler alert for Dave when he preaches on Sunday, just as Jesus will raise himself from the dead, he will raise those of us who put our faith and trust in him likewise from the dead. So far, the story of Lazarus might not be as straightforward as a Sunday morning um, Sunday school class uh, the way that we might have remembered. It has some kind of twists and turns in it, and we'll see that those twists and turns aren't quite over yet as we move on to the second scene. You could turn with me to John chapter 11, verse 17, as I read on. Now, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again, yes, in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. As our story continues, Jesus makes the trip with his disciples to Bethany, that is the town where Lazarus lived with Mary and Martha, not to be confused with um, Bethany beyond the Jordan. And now you can see on the map it's been enhanced. It has the first green line where Jesus would have traveled from Jerusalem to Bethany beyond the Jordan, but then they traveled back towards Jerusalem to the town of Bethany that's just outside this, the main city. If we were to try to establish a rough timeline here, we know that at some point, yes, Lazarus fell sick. Okay, we got that. We know that uh, Martha and Mary would have had to find messengers, give them a message, make sure that they heard it because they are, after all, men, and we don't listen, dispatch them to find Jesus. Again, we don't know how they found him. We don't know where they went to look if they had some kind of divine knowledge that he would be at Bethany beyond the Jordan, if there were rumors that Jesus was there, maybe they went to Jerusalem first, but they had to look for him before they found him. Nevertheless, uh, even if we work with the assumption that they knew right away, it would take two days to get to Bethany beyond the Jordan. Jesus decided to wait for how long? Two days. And then they took the trip back, which also took two days. Um, big surprise. They get there. In uh, the town of Bethany, where Lazarus is, the Bible says in John eleven seventeen that when Jesus arrives, he discovers Lazarus is in fact dead and had been for some time. Jesus declared this already previously in John chapter eleven verse fourteen. He claimed to know that Lazarus wasn't just sick; he was dead. At this point, I can't help but be remembered. I'm going to show my age a little bit, but there's a classic 1987 fantasy film called The Princess Bride. Has anyone ever seen it? A show of hands? Um, okay, I'm going to say less than 10%. Well, it's a good movie, okay? It's a classic adventure movie from the 1980s about this dashing hero who wants to save the princess love of his life from this evil prince, not her brother, but another prince. 
that's keeping her in chains. And at one point in the movie, the heroes, they bring one of their fallen comrades to a healer because their friend got hurt, and they come to see Miracle Max, played by uh, Billy Crystal. Uh, I've got the exchange up here, including the punchline at the end that I won't draw attention to, but it's really funny, so I left it. In the scene, the friends despair because they think that the hero is dead. And Miracle Max says, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. Now, there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Okay, the scene goes on, they say, well, he says, well, if, if your friend were dead, that would be a different story. You can only do one thing when they're dead. And they say, what's that? And he said, look through their pockets for loose change. <laughs> okay, for Lazarus is, I bring all this up, Lazarus is not uh, mostly dead. He's not slightly alive. Lazarus is completely dead, and the Bible makes no qualms about it. Um, in uh, John 11:43, we read later how uh, Lazarus's body went through some kind of ritualistic preparation. He was wrapped up all over with linens, binding his body. His face was covered with a ceremonial cloth. Uh, we read in John 12 about um, Mary and how she had anointed the Lord with this very expensive perfume. The Bible says that that perfume would cost a year's wages. And so it stands to reason that uh, Lazarus's body would also have been prepared equally with perfumes and ceremonial spices, not to preserve the body. They didn't have that kind of uh, technology back then. It would have just been to mask the smell. Uh, and and uh, back to verse 17 in John 11, John documents that Lazarus had been in the family tomb for four days. Lazarus was not on death's door. He did not have a near-death experience. He didn't... Uh, his heart didn't start beating again. He was stone cold dead. And this, by the way, is exactly what Jesus wanted. Okay? This is the reason for the two-day delay. If we think about it logically, if Jesus' goal was to glorify God, and I believe 100% that his goal was to glorify God, then he would have wanted to make sure of two things. And the first would be that there would be no question that Lazarus was dead. And there isn't. We've established that. Zero chance. The second, if the goal is to glorify God, he would want to make sure there would be as many people there as possible to witness this so that God can be glorified. The Bible says in John 11:9 that a gathering of many Jews had come to comfort the family. The insinuation, the strong insinuation is there that many of those Jews came from Jerusalem. Many visitors means many witnesses. Thank you. Yeah, so that's one important takeaway from the passage. The second important takeaway is found all in Martha's interactions with Jesus. Now, to our ears, Martha's first words might sound like a bit of an accusation. Get ready, Nancy. Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. But the consensus among biblical scholars is that's not what Martha meant at all. Martha is expressing her faith in what Jesus can do, not her anger about what he didn't do. I'm going to quote Don Carson a lot today. As, uh, he's widely regarded as the definitive commentator on the Gospel of John. He suggests that Martha's first words to Jesus are not a rebuke. They are words of grief and faith. Another 
Bible scholar that I uh, used in my studies, Leon Morris, he agrees that Martha's greeting is an expression of faith. The Lord who had healed so many others would surely have healed her brother. And Martha then doubles down on her expression of faith in verse 22 when she says that I know, even now, that God will give you, Jesus, whatever you ask. Just as Martha believes that Jesus' many other miraculous healings could have still happened for her brother, she also believes that Jesus enjoys some kind of unique and special relationship with God the Father. She has seen and she knows. She knows, but does she believe? That's the question. To all this, Jesus reassures her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she responds to him with what would have been a common Jewish understanding of resurrection at the time, uh, an understanding that would be uh, based on general prophetic references in the book of Isaiah and specific prophetic references in the book of Daniel that I expect we'll hear more about next week from Doug Virgin. The references to a physical body, bodily resurrection in the last days. The Paul, uh, sorry, the Apostle Paul, he also acknowledges this general belief among the Pharisees. And the Jewish Mishnah, which is the first kind of collection of uh, oral Jewish law that would have been compiled in the second century, that also reflects this general Jewish understanding of a physical bodily resurrection. But Jesus here, he demonstrates that Martha only thinks that she knows about the resurrection. Um, If we think about it, she knows that there will eventually be some kind of resurrection in the future. Uh, That includes her brother. She knows that God will do whatever Jesus asks. And she knows that Jesus could uh, could have healed her brother. But she doesn't quite put it all together that Jesus is going to do this right now. Jesus responds to Martha in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking for the resurrection. I'm telling you that I am the resurrection. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Notice in this passage that Martha twice talks about what she knows. I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. When our boys were little, they often responded to Kelly and I with the words, I know. It's time to clean your room. I know. Don't forget to ask your teacher for help on your assignment. I know. Hey, uh, let me show you how to really tie your shoe. Ah, I know. They said they knew, but they didn't know. Because rooms were still messy, and teachers didn't get asked for help with the assignments, and they kept tripping over their shoelaces all the time. And so eventually I came up with this really annoying fatherly catchphrase as they were growing up. I would say, stop knowing and start doing. Knowing stuff is great. Remember, I said one big goal that I have in 
breaking down the passage today is that we would know Christ more. But Jesus wants us to believe. Do you believe? Can you demonstrate through your thoughts and your feelings and your actions that those reflect accurately what you say you know? If I were to take my own parental advice and turn it into a pastoral message, I might say, stop knowing and start believing. In verse 24, Martha says she believes, and that belief is about to be tested in just a moment as we unpause the scene and move to the third and final of our scenes from today's story. In John 11:32, the Bible says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may know that you sent me. No, that's not what the scripture says. It says, so that they may know, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In the New International Version of the Bible, Jesus is described as being, quote-unquote, deeply mourned, uh, excuse me, deeply moved. In deeply moved in spirit and troubled at the sight of Mary and the other visitors weeping and mourning. Once again, John writes that Jesus was once more deeply moved, standing in front of the cave with a stone lying across the entrance. On this note, I want to return to Don Carson, uh, that great commentator on the Gospel of John, and here he strongly protests the English translation of the ancient Greek word, embrimaomai. That's my attempt at it. That word suggests that Jesus is merely moved by compassion. To quote him directly, Carson says, in no uncertain terms that it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. Instead, he suggests that this term more directly and more consistently translates to suggest anger or outrage or indignation. Carson likens this word embrimaomai to the snorting sound that horses make when they feel threatened. I'm not going to do the impression, but hopefully you've got it in your head. 
But angry at what? Angry. Besides writing his great commentary on the Gospel of John, Don Carson also wrote a really good book entitled Scandalous, The Cross and Resurrection of Jesus. In his book, he leaves behind his typical scholarly analysis and he infuses this, this scene and the words that Jesus uh, are used to describe Jesus, he infuses it with human emotion and passion. And I wanted to share this excerpt with you, which you'll also see on the screen. Jesus sees all these people weeping and crying and wailing in the face of implacable death. And he is outraged. He's profoundly troubled, so emotionally worked up over it that he weeps. Now, there is a compassion in these tears, but there is also outrage. Jesus is outraged not because he's lost a friend, but because of death itself. Death is such an ugly enemy. It generates endless and incalculable anguish. And for anyone steeped in the entire biblical heritage, death itself is a mark of sin. How is death introduced to the race? Death itself is nothing other than God's insistence that human hubris will go so far and no further. It is God's judicial response to our warped rebellion. Whether death affects us at 5 years old, or 10 years old, or 80 years old, it comes and it is implacable. We are sinners and we will die. Every time there is death, it still hurts. It is still painful. It is still ugly. And it is still the result of sin. This was not the way God made the creation in the first place. Jesus is outraged by the whole thing. He's outraged by the death that has called forth this loss, by the sin that lies behind all of that, and even by the unbelief that characterizes everyone's response to it. There is outrage and there is grief. He's done with it. Take away the stone, Jesus says. It's time to show the power that Jesus has been given over life and death. Remember I said Martha's belief would be tested. Here it comes. The big moment is about to happen. There's an electricity in the air. Jesus says, roll away the stone. And Martha says, but Lord, don't forget, it stinks. It's going to have a bad odor. It, it kind of, it's, it's, It doesn't sync with the mood, with the vibe that's going on in the scene. By the way, if I can make a Glenn Smith-style opening of a parenthesis here, he often does a little pause the story and aside. I want to give one for us too, okay? Um, And I want to make a personal comment on our belief, on our faith. Jesus wants us to believe. We've established that. And our faith gets tested all the time, probably every day. Your life experience probably informs you of that. I know that mine does. And uh, I'm sure that uh, when it happens that in your life that uh, your faith is tested and, and you fail or somehow fall short, um, I want to point out that the Bible never condemns us for that. Uh, you and I aren't labeled failures or bad Christians when our faith is tested and found to be lacking. Uh, 
What does Jesus say to those in his entourage who know a lot but struggle to believe? What does he say about them? He says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Not failures, not bad followers. Little faith. And when this happens in our life, that I fall, I fall short in my life because despite of all my head knowledge, that makes me a disciple of little faith. And that puts me and you in the company of Peter and John and James and Martha and all these other great pillars that we look up to of the Christian faith. And when that happens, and I fall short in my faith, I do what they do. I ask for forgiveness. God, forgive me for my lack of faith. Could you give me the faith that I need, the faith that I lack? I look to him to provide that. I try to follow Jesus right afterwards as faithfully as I can. So be encouraged, would you, when those moments happen and our faith is found to be lacking. Close parenthesis. Back to our story. Martha, 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 Martha. Ever the pragmatist. She had just spoken, remember, with Jesus about his power, about the resurrection, about believing him and never dying. And she interrupts his entry into the tomb with a warning about personal hygiene and smell. It is true, Jesus has no business whatsoever going into that tomb at this point, okay? From a cultural perspective, the ceremony was over a long time ago, days ago. All the mourning and wailing around the body, the visitation, it's done. The, the body was put in the tomb, it was sealed, it gets hot. And the mourners stayed, yes, but to tend to the family's needs, those who remain behind, not to the body itself. For Jesus to order the tomb to be opened up, the stone to roll away, uh, even Jewish uh, practices at that time around um, getting close to dead bodies, possibly touching them, that was a no-go. That would uh, be a mark of uncleanliness. So for Martha, knowing that Jesus talked about all these things, and knowing that Jesus was a faithful Jew, he did what the Lord wanted, his entry to the tomb at this late stage could really only mean one thing. But knowing and believing are two different things. I try to put myself in Martha's shoes. I try to wonder, well, how would I react? I would wonder, what on earth is Jesus doing, getting close to the tomb and going in? Uh, I'd like to believe that I could put two and two together. He talked about all this resurrection stuff, and I know that he's healed. Uh, he's, not, he's not really going to try that resurrection stuff. That's, that's later. That's at the end times. He didn't really mean he's, oh my, I could just get uh, goosebumps right now, thinking he, he did really mean that. And he is really about to try to. And Lazarus did really walk out of that tomb, once dead and now alive. So what? It's really hard to preach a, a sermon on the resurrection and to follow it with the words, so what? The resurrection is pretty amazing. Um, but I do mean it. So what? And I'm not trying to be irreverent or disrespectful. I mentioned earlier that one of my goals in, in breaking down today's passage was to help us increase our knowledge of Christ. But that's not the only goal. As our knowledge increases, 
Remember I said we want our faith to increase. And our faith, backed up by our actions, should ultimately recognize and amplify the glory of God. This is the point to everything. The story of Lazarus has remarkably little to do with Lazarus. We don't know pretty much anything about his life before he died, and we don't know anything that he may have said or done after he was resurrected. It's not about him. I had a thought, which is not in any of my notes or anything, but uh, as I work on a passage, I also learn a lot of things, but there tends to be a moment where God says something to me, and that moment happened 15 minutes before we showed up when I was showering, maybe longer than that. But I was showering this morning and, and reflecting on just this point that the story of Lazarus is really not about Lazarus. This is, we call it the story of Lazarus, but he is not the main character of his own story. And God told me this morning, Louis, do you realize you are not the main character of your own story? We are important. Today we would have established that Jesus values our life. But we are not important because of the clothes that we wear or the achievements that we've made or the, the money that we've accumulated or the great things we might have done. We're important because he makes us important. He is the main character of our story. Jesus is the main character of our story. And I believe that's not just a theological truth. I believe that there is some practical application to the knowledge that we are not the main characters of our story. This is not all about me or about you. It is about the glory of God. I said the story of Lazarus, as amazing as his resurrection is, I said it's not about the resurrection either. I am preaching a message about the resurrection of Lazarus, and it's not about Lazarus or the resurrection. It is about the glory of God, and I'll prove it to you. Jesus bookends this whole story in John 11 with something before it happens and something after it happens. Early in John 11:4, Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory that God may be glorified through it. And at the end, after the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says late in John 11:40, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? It's all about the glory of God. Leon Morris wrote, Jesus' words are a reminder of his unfailing aim. Jesus' unfailing aim is the glory of God. What was going to happen would be a spectacular miracle. Absolutely. It would be a display of the power of Jesus. It would be an inestimable gift to Mary and Martha, and so on. But for Jesus, the glory of God was the one important thing. The real meaning of what Jesus would do is accessible only by faith. Everyone there, everyone in this story, believing or not, would see the miracle. But Jesus is promising Martha a sight of the glory of God. The crowd would see the miracle, but Martha and we would see the glory of God. I'm ending with this silly question, but what is the glory of God? We, we sang about it this morning. I asked them to prepare songs about God's glory. But what is it, really? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? 
evangelical pastor John Piper famously said that defining the glory of God is impossible because the glory of God is more like the word beauty than like the word basketball. If you met someone who never heard of what a basketball was, you could describe the shape of a basketball, the color, what it's used for, the properties, and they would walk away with a pretty good understanding of what a basketball is, even if they never saw it. But how would you describe beauty to someone that's never heard of the word? Piper goes on to try because he rightly believes that we, we have to try. His definition is that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections, of God's many perfections. And he cites uh, verses like Psalm 19.1 and Isaiah 6.3 to demonstrate this. We were created, brothers and sisters, to see God's glory, to see the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. Our creation, our very existence, also is used to reflect God's glory. We are one of his many countless creations. We are unique in among the creations, but just the fact that we exist is a testimony to God's greatness. Not only in our creation, but in our lives themselves. Because lastly, we were created to proclaim God's glory, to, to share it, to point it, to say, look, the choices that we make every day, the mercy that we show others, the forgiveness we extend to those who wronged us, the repentance that we practice when we turn away from sin, all of this is a lived testimony that proclaims the glory of God. So as we approach the Easter season, as we remind ourselves not only of Lazarus' death and resurrection, but Jesus's. Among other things, this is an opportunity for us to become intentional and active participants in witnessing and proclaiming and experiencing the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we stand in awe of your glory, of the infinite beauty and greatness of your many perfections. We sang about it this morning, and we were so filled with the Spirit that we clapped, not for the people who are on the stage, as wonderful as they are, but we clapped for you, God. It was a spontaneous eruption of, of, of love and, and awe and wonder at who you are and what you're all about. There is no one or anything quite like you. You have no comparison, no equal. Lord, we thank you that somehow you have chosen us to participate in the reflection of your glory. Of all the things that add up, that sum up to what your glory is, we are a part of that. Not because we're so awesome, but because you're so awesome. Lord, help us to see these things in the ordinary day by day. Help us to see and experience that the choices we know something or believe it, all of this amounts to our participation in glorifying you. Help us to see that and proclaim it this week, God. We look forward to being reminded of these